I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 510. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our wondrous, great, triune God, we love you because you have first loved us. We love you, our Heavenly Father, for the wonder of sovereign, divine, electing grace that you have chosen us as your dearly loved, treasured possession even before the foundation of this world. We love you, our eternal Son and most all-sufficient sacrifice for sins, the one who raised gloriously from the grave on that third day. And because of our union with you, we have peace and hope, life eternal. And blessed Holy Spirit, we thank you for taking that work of our Savior and effectually applying it to our lives, changing hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear the word of truth. And we look to you this day as we study your word. May we, every time we gather, long to grow in our affection for Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me, Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call in the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to You the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. In Your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The Word of our God, you may be seated. One of the most helpful resources that I have found in studying the Psalms is a book by Palmer Robertson on the flow of the Psalms. And in that book, Robertson helps the reader to understand that the way in which the Psalms are structured in the book are very intentional, not at all haphazard. And throughout the Psalms, we come across smaller collections or groupings of Psalms based upon theme or content. You might think, for example, of our own Trinity hymnal in which we find Easter or Christmas hymns sort of clustered together throughout that hymnal. Now, at this particular point in the Psalms, we find such a collection from Psalms 113 to 118, Psalms of praise that would have been used during the annual Passover celebration. And so, there is a theme that we find here. 
These are psalms that focus upon wonderful Exodus-type subjects like God's deliverance, blessing, and salvation. They are psalms that focus upon wonderful attributes of the Lord that would have been on display during something like the Exodus journey, things like His kingly reign and His sovereign rule, His infinite power to bring about His purposes, His tender and compassionate mercy as He cares faithfully for His own. And they are psalms that still have relevance for the people of God today. They exhort us, direct us, teaching us what our response ought to be because of who the Lord is and His greatness and what He has done to save us from condemnation, namely to respond in joy, trust, praise, and worship. Now, last week we saw that Psalm 115 was all about learning to praise the Lord by trusting in Him. You might remember how verse 1 of that psalm laid this very important foundation, a foundation not only for everything else that came in the psalm, but we could say a foundation for the Christian life. Not to us, O Lord, but to Your name give glory. And so we saw there that all of life for the believer in Christ Jesus is to be lived with this Godward orientation, this God-centered awareness that everything that we do should be done for the glory of God. Now, the way in which these psalms would have been used during the Passover celebration was for the first two, Psalms 113 and 14, to be read prior to the Passover meal and the others after the meal. And so, in the New Testament, when we read in the gospel narratives in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 that Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with His disciples after He instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the text tells us that the disciples sang a hymn together before they departed towards the Mount of Olives, where, of course, Jesus would be betrayed. And so, I think there's good reason for us to deduce that this Psalm 116 would have been among those hymns of praise that Jesus shared with His disciples in those final hours with them in the upper room. And I think that historical context really gives us new insight into how this psalm points to our Savior. When we say that all psalms are Christological by nature, what we mean by that is that they are fulfilled in Christ. They teach us about the character of Christ and the redeeming work of Christ, and they help us to learn as followers of Christ what a Christ-like life should look like. In a sermon on this psalm that I listened to this past week, the pastor said, our Savior lived this psalm and sang this psalm. His disciples lived this psalm, and His people continue to live and sing this psalm because this psalm reflects the experience of every true believer. And I hope that will be made clear to us in our time together as we study this psalm. Now, we'll break this psalm into three parts this morning using basic gospel categories. And those categories are guilt, grace, and gratitude. And so, first this morning in verses 1 through 4, the psalmist speaks of his salvation from guilt or his salvation from condemnation. In these opening verses, the psalmist acknowledges that in his need, the Lord saved him. And because of that salvation, he now longs to declare his love for the Lord. Now, verse 1, I think, is really a wonderful way for us to approach the Lord in our own prayers. 
in proclaiming our love for Him. Because you see, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be able to declare without hesitation, I love the Lord. And we express our love for the Lord by hungering for His Word, desiring to be conformed to that Word more and more, and longing to even gather with God's people to worship Him together. At its very core, my love for Jesus is growing because I understand that He has saved me from guilt. I think it's pastoral of me to say that if you do not love the Lord, if you cannot say with honesty and with integrity, I love the Lord Jesus, then you might wonder if you truly know Him at all. Of course, none of us loves the Lord as we should, but if your affections are cold toward Him, if you find that you have very little thought throughout your week of things of the Lord and how your life ought to be different because of who the Lord Jesus is, if you have no interest for such things, do you really understand His grace and His mercy? So, how do we grow in our love for the Lord? Well, there's this helpful insight from Charles Spurgeon that I was giving some thought to this past week in which he writes, when love can justify itself with reason, it's deeper, stronger, and more abiding. You might think of the example of marital love between a husband and wife. One way in which their love grows and matures over the years is not only by expressing that love to one another, but also for husband to give reasons why he loves his wife, for wife to give reasons why she loves her husband. And those reasons given for their love enables that love to become stronger, deeper, and more abiding. Now, I know that as Calvinists, we can get a bad rap at times for many things, but especially when we start talking about emotions, affections, and reason and how they fit together. But you see, reason and emotion do go together. Don't let anyone convince you that that's a bad combination or that that's a contradiction in some way. Because if isolating one from the other, it really just leads to immaturity. See, think of it like this. Emotion without reason is unstable. It lacks real substance. It's juvenile. It's unpredictable. Reason, on the other hand, without emotion is just mechanical and cold. Clearly, this is a psalm of great affection toward the Lord in which the psalmist lists reasons for his love toward God. And so, what are among those reasons that the psalm talks about here? Well, we love Him because He first loved us. We saw that in our Scripture reading this morning from 1 John chapter 4, and we see it here in this psalm. Every time you see the word LORD in the English text in all caps, that is a way to indicate God's covenant name. And to speak the covenant name of the Lord is by implication to acknowledge that His love comes to us first. We do not stir our affections toward Him as though we can initiate love toward God because we were dead in our sins, but rather He changed our hearts and set His love and affection upon us. And now we long to respond in love to His amazing love to us in Christ Jesus. And the psalmist goes on to list other reasons why he loves the Lord. 
as he reflects upon his past. He remembers a time of great need in his life in which he experienced anguish, distress, and the very real threat of death. And these are not just things that he speaks about here in the first four verses, but it's these things that he alludes to throughout this particular psalm. He's filled with wonder that God would save him. He's filled with amazement that God would hear his cry and his plea for mercy and come and help him. Who are we that God would save us? What value do we have that the infinite God of the universe would listen to the prayers and the cries of his people? It's not only that we are insignificant before a God of such greatness, but we are wicked and rebellious. We have spurned his loving authority. We have thumbed our noses toward his lordship. We have willingly plunged ourselves into ruin and destruction. And the psalmist recognizes his need. He sees his guilt. He knows that there is nothing commendable within him, nothing within himself that could be the ground upon which he could appeal to God for mercy, but only because the Lord is the faithful covenant God. That is what gives him confidence to come to the Lord in prayer. And this is another reason for his love towards God, confidence that the Lord hears his prayer. Notice verse 4, it was a simple prayer. O Lord, deliver my soul. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands this morning, but how many of you struggle in prayer? Maybe you struggle with making prayer the priority in your life that you know it should be. Maybe you struggle at times knowing what sorts of things to pray for and how that prayer should be directed towards the Lord in trust and yet bold request. Perhaps your struggle is to stay focused on your prayers to the Lord. We might feel at times as though our prayers are not very eloquent. Perhaps we listen to the prayers of others and we're intimidated. Many of us perhaps have been Christians for many, many years, and we still can't believe how lousy our prayers are at times. I don't think any of us are pleased with our prayer life. But I think this wonderfully short prayer ought to be an encouragement to us. Oh, Lord, deliver my soul. It's a simple prayer. It's a natural prayer. It's a heartfelt prayer. It's a prayer of faith. It's actually a very rich prayer. Deliver my soul. It kind of reminds me of that wonderful prayer of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, in which he prays, we do not know what to do but our eyes are upon you. You may not know exactly what to say at times, but you can pray to the Lord for deliverance. You may not know what to do, but you can fix your eyes upon Him. And so this prayer for deliverance, notice that it is a genuine prayer flowing from a heart that is overwhelmed with God's goodness and kindness and mercy. Notice how it's a prayer of trust, acknowledging that the Lord hears and that He alone has the power and the ability to deliver. It's also a prayer of humility in that He looks away from Himself to the Lord, who is kind to save, to listen, and to help. And it's a prayer out of need. I'm in a desperate situation that I cannot free myself from. I need the Lord to deliver me. Our God is a prayer-answering God 
and I love him because he hears my voice. I love him because he first loved me. And it's out of my great need, it's out of my guilt and my shame that I come to him for mercy. And that moves the psalmist to dwell upon the wonderful and amazing grace of the Lord. And that's the second thing that we see in this psalm, which is grace in verses 5 through 11, from guilt to now grace. Of course, if all we did was focus upon our guilt, upon our depravity, upon our lowly condition in the presence of a holy God, if we stopped there, there would be no hope, there would be no comfort, there would be really no good news. Now, there is a proper reason to see the misery of our sin. There's a reason why we need to understand the just condemnation that we deserve. And this is so that the mercy of God would be heightened. In other words, the more that we see the wickedness of our own hearts, the more majestic and wonderful is the grace and mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Pastor McWilliams reminds us frequently of that wonderful statement by J. Gresham Machen that a high view of the law of God which also then produces a low view of self, makes us seekers of grace. Now, sometimes even in the church, there can be the assumption that there's something that I must do to alleviate my guilty conscience, to perhaps deal with memories of past failure, something that I must do. But the gospel is good news And this is what the psalmist gives his attention to there in verse 5, which is a transition focusing upon the grace of the Lord. He is the gracious one. He is the righteous God, the Lord full of mercy. And it's these wonderful attributes of the Lord that give me confidence that I can come to Him in my great need. What amazement that He preserves me. What wonder that He comes to save me in my helpless condition. One of the unfortunate things that I've noticed as I get older is that my memory is not as intact as it once was. Perhaps that's just a product of age that some of you have experienced as well, or you will at some point in your life. But unfortunately, it seems like the things that don't fade as much as I might like are my weaknesses, failures, foolish things from the past. When our son was just a toddler and we lived in San Diego, we went to the beach one day with some friends. And the beach wasn't really that crowded, which is pretty rare for Southern California. As my wife and I, our young son, our friends were standing there looking at the waves that were sort of peaking and cresting in perfect rhythm, beautiful breeze coming off of the Pacific Ocean, looking at the sand and taking in the beauty of God's creation. As typically happens, a wave came up much higher than we had anticipated, and out of self-preservation, I just ran. (laughs) I didn't want to get my clothes wet, leaving my son to get knocked over by the wave. (laughs) To make it even worse, my friend was the first one to run back and scoop him out of the water. It's not one of my finer moments, and perhaps one of the reasons why he lives in North Carolina now. But what comfort that God is not like that, that when we are low, 
He never abandons or forsakes us, but rather He saves us. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is true. And we can actually rest in His hands, not in the hands of our weak earthly fathers who might be filled with self-preservation. And the psalmist here is not speaking merely theoretically. Look at verse 6. We don't know exactly what he has in mind here, but notice how he is recalling a time in which he was brought low, and the Lord saved him. And it can be good for us in our own lives to think of those lowly times in which the Lord has revealed his faithfulness to us. Now, there are times throughout the book of Psalms in which the psalmist faces this inward struggle. He knows something to be true intellectually. He knows it to be true theologically, but he's struggling to actually put it into practice, to put into practice that which he knows to be true. And so we'll find him occasionally speaking to himself. Now, don't use some modern-day psychotherapeutic label here to try to figure out what's going on with the psalmist, but simply recognize that this is an inward struggle that all of us have to one degree or another. It's a struggle to reconcile biblical truth with experiential trust, in which I know that something is true, but I struggle to bring my heart in alignment with that truth. And so we see him speak to that inner self there in verse 7, return, O soul, to your rest. Now, this place of rest, it's not capitalized. It's not a particular place, of course, that he has in mind. Don't think to yourself of that spot on the living room couch where you may like to cozy down with a cup of coffee and sort of try to ignore all the problems of the world, but rather that place of rest is the living God. Remember, it is Jesus who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so when you're overwhelmed with life, return to your Savior Talk to yourself and remind yourself of what you know to be true. Tell yourself to go and rest in the promises of God. Joel Beakey puts it like this, aren't you at times tired of yourself? Aren't you tired of your own sin? Aren't you tired of the sin around you? Aren't you tired of the shallowness of this world and the vanity of it all? Go to Jesus and find rest and purpose and meaning again. And this really is the comfort that we read in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If the heavenly Father sent his only begotten son as an atonement for sin, then why would he be stingy and hold back from us now? And so the all things that are graciously ours are the wonderful benefits of our salvation that He has not only rescued me from death, but has treated me with abundant kindness, driving away sorrow, keeping me from stumbling, restoring to life that which was once dead. We turn to Christ again and again because we need to receive and rest upon Christ Jesus alone for our salvation every single day. And it's the wonder of God's nature that stirs the heart of the psalmist in his affection toward God. In contrast to the greatness of God, we are truly simple people 
At times we may feel like the psalmist here, beaten down, lowly, in the depths of sorrow and despondency in which we need to be reminded of the wonder of our salvation. Isn't this one of the main benefits of gathering together with God's people to worship the Lord, to be reoriented back to eternal truths? We might feel like every day we're just being ground down by the discouragement of our jobs, the ills of society, the frustration of dealing with difficult people, even the betrayal or the lies of others, the pressures of life. Sometimes it's the tears of sorrow, the anguish of trials that we are enduring, and we need to hear once again of the joy of our salvation. It would be good for your souls in that inner man to think about how many times the Lord has helped you. Think about how many times the Lord has offered to you consolation. Think of how many times you have been refreshed, comforted at the joy of your salvation. Of how many times the Lord's preserving hand of grace has given to you rest. One, I think of the very practical ways in which we can speak such truths to our soul is to take time each night when we go to bed and reflect upon how the Lord has preserved you. Think through some specific ways in which you saw the Lord's kindness to you, in which you saw His tenderness, faithfulness, His watch over you and His preserving hand. And on those days when you're filled with great heartache or struggle and you're having difficulty thinking of something particular that happened that day, at the very least, reflect upon the fact that your soul has been delivered from death. And so whether it's the guilt of conscience, whether it's just the struggles of living in a fallen world, whether it's hardships and sorrows and disappointments of life, we will never exhaust the wonder of the grace of Jesus, which speaks to all of our troubles to give us joy and hope and comfort. And that leads us to the third thing that we see in this psalm, which is really the only proper response to grace, gratitude, in verses 12 through 19. Look again to verse 12. What can I render? What, in other words, could I return How could I ever repay Him? Could I ever express gratitude enough as I reflect upon all the benefits of my salvation? How could I ever thank Him adequately? Of course, the answer is I cannot. But yet my heart longs to respond in gratitude, in grateful obedience, with increased love and devotion. And you might ask yourself as sort of a self-evaluation question, how am I doing in all of this? How am I doing in giving thanks and gratitude to the Lord? Perhaps like me, you can find your attention quickly drawn to the things of this world that are unpleasant. Perhaps you're quick to complain or focus upon all the things that are frustrating in this world. So this psalm can be a good thing to help reorient us back to eternal things, back to the greatness of God. Think for a moment, why are we so quick to complain about our circumstances? Why does it seem that almost like a magnetic pull, we're drawn to grumble and complain about the hardships and struggles and busyness of life? 
Why do our conversations with others seem to be filled with such things of grumbling or complaining? Well, one, because I think we think much too highly of ourselves than we ought. But two, I think we take those things of the world and we elevate them, making them much larger within mind and heart than they really are. So this is where a psalm like this can, again, help to reorient us, putting those things in their proper place. Because an end is coming to all things that are difficult, all things that are unpleasant and hard in this life, even the most difficult thing of all, the reality of death, will one day be behind us. We find this very interesting statement regarding death there in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Now, we might wonder, isn't death the product of the fall? Isn't death in this world because of our rebellion towards God and our disdain toward Him and His judgment against us for that? So, how can death be a precious thing? Well, notice that it's not death itself that is precious, but it is the death of His saints. And when you think of saints, don't think here of some Roman Catholic notion of those who were extra pious or holy people, but saints are all of those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, you might remember, teaches us that since Jesus has removed the sting of death in His resurrection for the grave, then death for the believer is not the end, but is a passageway, a doorway into the presence of Christ. And yet for the one who does not trust and rest in Christ for salvation, death leads to eternal condemnation. For the believer in Christ, there is benefit from death in that suffering is ended and joy is forevermore. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, how can death be gain? What do we actually gain from death? Well, it's gain because of the things of this world that are left behind, the body of sin and death the afflictions that come in various forms, the temptations that we face on a daily basis. Michael Barrett writes, you will leave behind your sinful heart. You will leave behind the hardships of your difficult life, your temptations and the thorns in your flesh. Think of it. There will be no more sin, no more Satan, no more worldliness, no more old nature. All evil is walled out and all good is walled in. No more tears, no more night, no more pain, no more death, no more curse, no more temptation. And it's not just gain because of the things that we leave behind, but Barrett goes on, death is gain because of what we receive in death. We are transformed into Christ's image. We are brought into Christ's presence. We will worship God perfectly. We will serve Him perfectly. We will have perfect fellowship with the saints in heaven who have preceded us. Death is gain, for it brings me to Jesus. One hour with Christ is better than a lifetime in this world. And you see, the death of the saint is precious to the Lord because the shed blood of Jesus is precious. The death of the saint is precious to the Lord because every time a believer in Christ dies and his or her soul is ushered into the presence of the living God, it testifies to the all-sufficient work of our Savior. 
Every time a saint dies, it bears witness to the fact that what Jesus finished upon the cross and rose from the grave accomplished its purpose. Death is vanquished. Sin is forgiven, and the curse is removed. And since death is vanquished, those bonds have been loosed, as we read in verse 16, and we therefore have nothing to fear. Now, of course, the believer in Christ, as they struggle toward the end of their days, may have apprehension about death because, of course, it's something that we have not yet experienced. Now, don't ever believe those yahoos who tell you that they have died and seen something beyond the grave and have come back to write about it. That's a mystery for us, and it is not for us to know. But we are told to walk by faith, believe in the promises of God, that as soon as we take our final breath upon this earth, we will be ushered into the presence of our great God. To quote from Spurgeon again, the Lord watches over the saints' dying beds, smooths their pillows, sustains their hearts, and receives their souls. Those who are redeemed with precious blood are so dear to God that even their deaths are precious to Him. And so all of this works in our hearts a longing of gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord in which we want to praise Him more and more, striving to finish well in our desire to honor Him. Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, took that bitter cup, that cup that reminded all of the Israelites of the bitter days of slavery. As we read in verse 13, it is now lifted up as a cup of salvation, and it is offered full and free to all who receive Him by faith. Come what may, He is the stable foundation upon which you can rest. In the midst of hardship, we all face the great temptation to turn from God, to question Him, to make our displeasures known to Him. But what this psalmist presses us to consider is that in your time of trouble, even those times when you're reminded of your guilt before the Lord, look again to the wonder of your salvation. See this as an opportunity for spiritual growth and progress as you press on to come through the trial that the Lord may bring into your life, loving Him even more because you have been made more aware of things like His pardoning grace, His perfect righteousness, His loving compassion. And as your mind is filled with the joy of your salvation, as the grace of Christ Jesus dominates your mind and the wonder of Christ occupies your heart more and more, in turn, you long to live a life of gratitude in your walk before Him. And so, as we acknowledge our guilt, as we marvel at the grace of Christ Jesus, our Savior, may the Lord be pleased to work in our hearts a greater and greater love for Him that manifests itself in gratitude. Praise the Lord.